Section 23 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Darbandi. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 23. A Day at Ems by Lord Beaconsfield. I think we'd better take a little coffee now, and then, if you like, we'll just stroll into the Redoute, continued Baron de Koningstein. In a brilliantly illuminated saloon, adorned with Corinthian columns, and casts from some of the most famous antique statues, assembled between nine and ten o'clock in the evening, many of the visitors at Ems. On each side of the room was placed a long, narrow table, one of which was covered with green baize and unattended, while the variously colored leather surface of the other was very closely surrounded by an interested crowd. Behind this table stood two individuals of very different appearance. The first was a short, thick man, whose only business was dealing certain portions of playing cards with quick succession, one after the other, and as the fate of the table was decided by this process, did his companion an extremely tall, thin man, throw various pieces of money upon certain stakes, which were deposited by the bystanders on different parts of the table, or, which was more often the case, with a silver rake with a long ebony handle, sweep into a large enclosure near him the scattered sums. This enclosure was called the bank, and the mysterious ceremony in which these persons were assisting was the celebrated game of Rouge et Noir. A deep silence was strictly observed by those who immediately surrounded the table. No voice was heard, save that of the little, short, stout dealer, when, without an expression of the least interest, he seemed mechanically to announce the fate of the different colors. No other sound was heard, save the jingle of the dollars and napoleons, and the ominous rake of the tall, thin banker. The countenances of those who were hazarding their money were grave and gloomy, their eyes were fixed, their brows contracted, and their lips projected, and yet there was evident effort visible to show that they were both easy and unconcerned. Each player held in his hand a small piece of pasteboard, on which, with a steel pricker, he marked the run of the cards, in order, from his observations, to regulate his own play. The Rouge et Noir player imagines that chance is not capricious. Those who were not interested in the game promenaded in two lines within the tables, or, seated in recesses between the pillars, formed small parties for conversation. As Vivian and the Baron entered, Lady Magdalene Trevor, leaning on the arm of an elderly man, left the room, but as she was in earnest conversation, she did not observe them. "'I suppose we must throw away a dollar or two, Gray,' said the Baron, as he walked up to the table. "'My dear de Koningstein, one pinch, one pinch. "'Ah, Marquis, what fortune tonight? "'Bad, bad.' I have lost my Napoleon. I never risk further. There's that cursed, crusty old de Trumpetson, persisting, as usual, in his run of bad luck, because he will never give in. Trust me, my dear de Koningstein, it'll end in his ruin, and then, if there's a sale of his effects, I shall perhaps get the snuff-box. Ah! Come, Gray, shall I throw down a couple of Napoleons on joint account? I don't care much for play myself, but I suppose at M's, we must make up our minds to lose a few louis. Here, now for the red. Join account, mind. Done. There's the Archduke. 
Let us go and make our bow. We didn't stick at the table as if our whole soul was staked with our crown pieces. We'll make our bow and then return in time to know our fate. So saying, the gentleman walked up to the top of the room. Why, Gray? Surely no. It cannot be. And yet it is. De Boufleurs, how do you do, said the baron, with a face beaming with joy and a hearty shake of the hand. My dear, dear fellow, how the devil did you manage to get off so soon? I thought you were not to be here for a fortnight. We only arrived ourselves today. Yes, but I've made an arrangement which I did not anticipate, and so I posted after you immediately. Whom do you think I have brought with me? Who? Salvinsky. Ah, and the Count? Follows immediately. I expect him tomorrow or next day. Salvinsky is talking to the Archduke, and see, he beckons to me. I suppose I am going to be presented. The Chevalier moved forward, followed by the Baron and Vivian. Any friend of Prince Salvinsky, I shall always have great pleasure in having presented to me. Chevalier, I feel great pleasure in having you presented to me. Chevalier, you want to be proud of the name of Frenchman. Chevalier, the French are a grand nation. Chevalier, I have the highest respect for the French nation. The most subtle diplomatist, thought Vivian, as he recalled to mind his own introduction, would be puzzled to decide to which interest his imperial highness leans. The archduke now entered into conversation with the prince, and most of the circle who surrounded him. As his highness was addressing Vivian, the baron let slip our hero's arm, and seizing hold of the Chevalier de Beaufleurs, began walking up and down the room with him, and was soon engaged in very animated conversation. In a few minutes the archduke, bowing to his circle, made a move, and regained the side of a Saxon lady, from whose interesting company he had been disturbed by the arrival of Prince Salvinsky, an individual of whose long stories and dull romances the archduke had, from experience, a particular dread, but his highness was always very courteous to the Poles. Gray, I've dispatched de Beaufleurs to the house to instruct the servant and Ernstoff to do the impossible, in order that our rooms may all be together. You'll be delighted with de Beaufleurs when you know him, and I expect you to be great friends. Oh, by the by, his unexpected arrival has quite made us forget our venture at Rouge et Noir. Of course, we're too late now for anything. Even if we had been fortunate, our doubled stake, remaining on the table, is of course lost. We may as well, however, walk up. So saying, the baron reached the table. That is your excellency's stake, that is your excellency's stake, exclaimed many voices as he came up. What's the matter, my friends, what's the matter? asked the baron very calmly. There's been a run on the red, there's been a run on the red, and your excellency's stake has doubled each time. It has been four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one twenty-eight, two fifty-six, and now it's five-twelve quickly rattled the little thin man in spectacles, pointing at the same time to his unparalleled line of punctures. This was one of those officious, noisy little men, who are always ready to give you unasked information on every possible subject, and who are never so happy as when they are watching over the interests of some stranger, who never thanks them for their unnecessary solicitude. Vivian, in spite of his philosophy, felt the excitement and wonder of the moment. He looked very earnestly at the baron, whose countenance, however, remained perfectly unmoved. Gray, said he very coolly, it seems we're in luck. The stake's then not all your own? Very eagerly asked the little man in spectacles. No, part of it is yours, sir, answered the baron very dryly. I'm going to deal, said the short, thick man behind. Is the board cleared? Your Excellency then allows the stake to remain, inquired the tall, thin banker with affected nonchalance. 
Oh, certainly, said the Baron, with real nonchalance. Three, eight, fourteen, twenty-four, thirty-four, rouge thirty-four. All crowded nearer. The table was surrounded five or six deep, for the wonderful run of luck had got wind, and nearly the whole room were round the table. Indeed, the Archduke and Saxon lady, and of course the silent suite, were left alone at the upper part of the room. The tall banker did not conceal his agitation. Even the short, stout dealer ceased to be a machine. All looked anxious except the baron. Vivian looked at the table. His excellency watched, with a keen eye, the little dealer. No one even breathed as the cards descended. Ten, twenty. Here the countenance of the banker brightened. Twenty-two, twenty-five, twenty-eight, thirty-one. Noir thirty-one. The banks broke. No more play tonight. The roulette table opens immediately. In spite of the great interest which had been excited, nearly the whole crowd, without waiting to congratulate the baron, rushed to the opposite side of the room in order to secure places at the roulette table. Put these 512 Napoleons into a bag, said the baron. Gray, this is your share, and I congratulate you. With regard to the other half, Mr. Herman, what bills have you got? Two on Gogol's house of Frankfurt, accepted, of course, for 250 each, and these 12 Napoleons will make it right, said the tall banker as he opened a large black pocket-book, from which he took out two small bits of paper. The baron examined them, and after having seen them endorsed, put them calmly into his pocket, not forgetting the twelve Napoleons, and then, taking Vivian's arm, and regretting extremely that he should have the trouble of carrying such a weight, he wished Mr. Herman a very good night and success at his roulette, and walked with his companion quietly home. Thus passed the day at Ems. End of section 23 Recording by Dan Darbandy.